And I, I want you to open up to page 774, 774. Jonah, two pages, seven weeks. How's that? Pretty impressive, huh? Not so bad. Well, we, we just finished uh, a five-week series on the solas of the Reformation, and if you missed it, you can go back and you can get all those sermons, listen to them, listen to them, understand that this is some powerful truth, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, so ultimately God alone is glorified. And But going through a topical study, just so you know, if you're somewhat recent to the Missio Dei family, going through a topical study is not what we typically do. We're not a topical church. Our standard... Uh, procedure, our standard practice is to go straight through whole books of the Bible. And why do we do this? Well, quite simply because we believe that God inspired this entire collection of books. And uh, by inspired, we mean that what the Bible writers wrote is what God moved them to write. Their words are His words. And while they carry a a wide, wide diversity of styles, they all possess an authority that is from God because these are His gods. They are breathed out by Him, therefore they carry God's endorsement, His weight. So we are going to start Jonah. This is going to be our second Old Testament book. And this is going to be a challenge for some of us because we're all, we're all going to carry some baggage into Old Testament kinds of books, especially Jonah, because some of you automatically go to Veggie Tales or those church flannel graphs, you know, or maybe you immediately think of a great big fish. It's kind of like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's really not about Joseph or his Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a story about what God is doing particularly in the life of one man. And we have that same kind of baggage that we carry to Jonah. So this morning we are going to read through the entire book. We're not going to preach a whole sermon on the entire book. This morning is going to be a little different um, in that it's going to be a little bit more instructional or academic to set a foundation so we know how to handle Jonah appropriately. But I want to read through it so that you understand the full story of Jonah, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So... He paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid, and each one cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where and where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. They were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do, with, do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew even more and more tempestuous. I love that word, tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, all the waves and all... And your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard to vain, who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and then he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not be fed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and know the violence that is in his hand. Who knows, maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over, up over Jonah, that there would be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that would attack the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he would faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me say this. It's a confusing book. Did you notice how kind of abruptly it ended? And with, and also, much cattle? <laughs> Stick around for that week, you know? See how I deal with that one. But, like I said, this sermon is probably going to be far more instructive than uh, other sermons that we do. Um, we're doing this so that we could set the stage correctly so that we can receive the text most effectively for many people when you hear that we're going to preach from the old testament there's a cringing that goes on internally and you kind of go old testament really it's kind of the crusty section it's the section that has a lot of the rules and the regulations does that really apply to me and many people when they hear old testament they get a a bad rap because it doesn't really engage me you know i'd much rather hear something from the gospels i'd much rather hear something from paul or even revelation even though it seems kind of obscure i'd rather hear something from that than the old testament Maybe it's the, the genealogies, or maybe it's the strange locations, or, or the really odd names, or the big words that we got to look up in theological dictionaries. But Paul, Apostle Paul, discusses the importance of the Old Testament in his first letter to the Corinthians. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let no one who thinks that he uh, that he stands takes heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it Simply, if God found it important enough to have someone write it down, it must be important for us to learn from it. Jonah is an important book. And before you sit and say, man, can't we just, can't we just talk about Jesus? Can't we just have a Jesus moment this morning? Well, since Jesus is the hero of the entire biblical narrative we this morning cannot help but talk about jesus this story is about jesus our condition as men and women is not new that's why paul says it is common to man and it echoes what uh, solomon said in ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun we are broken people who are in need of the redeemer And that hasn't changed since Genesis 3, which took place before Jonah 1. Nothing has changed. So each book of the Bible speaks of that fact, of that need. If it's in the Old Testament, it is waiting for that Redeemer to be coming. If it is in the New Testament, it is waiting for our Redeemer to return. We cannot wait. And Jonah is no different, yet it is extremely different. When we hear about Jonah, 
usually our minds immediately conjure up the idea of Jonah and the, the whale, right? It seems that we give an inordinate amount of attention to that amazing event. Our, when I mention Jonah, we immediately go to whale. Whale becomes the centerpiece of that entire book. It's quite incredible that a guy is swallowed by a whale and lives to tell the story. I'll, I'll give that to you. And our minds can't imagine what it must have been in li- inside of this whale living for three days in stomach acid for three days. We can't get it. And many people dismiss Jonah today because they look at it as unimportant or just absolutely plain irrelevant because I don't know anybody who has lived inside the belly of a whale. So it's irrelevant for me. Some deny it for the impossible miracle, which obviously is a paradox, an impossible miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle. Miracles are impossible. However, most deny it due to just familiarity. We're so familiar with the story of Jonah through, you know, the old, I don't know how many of you grew up in the church with the the flannel board, the blue flannel board, and they throw up the felt figures and tell the story of this little whale and this little tiny man, and all of a sudden there's this little plant that gives them a shade and all that. I grew up, and it just becomes this familiar kind of thing. Then we have those those darn veggie tales. Don't start singing it because it, it gets stuck in your head. It becomes so familiar that it's easy to dismiss Jonah altogether and not take it seriously or at least look beyond the whale. That fish gets all the tension when the message, in fact, is about God and his relationship with us. That's what the story is really about. Even the Jewish culture recognizes the importance of Jonah. Once a year, on what was probably considered the most important holiday of the entire Jewish culture, Yom Kippur, the Jews gathered together in synagogues to recite prayers of confession corporately as opposed to individually. It was the Day of Atonement, the day to confess any and all sins that you have committed. It, it is, in some sense, the last-ditch chance for you to avert God's judgment and to make amends for the past year. And during the afternoon service, the book of Jonah is read in its entirety. And as the passage is read in that afternoon session, the congregation responds with the words, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. So the question then becomes of how am I Jonah? How are you Jonah? And why am I Jonah? So who is this Jonah? Jonah is what is considered to be a minor prophet of God. Not exactly a title today that you would love to have, but he was a minor prophet. And what does this mean? Well, being a minor prophet speaks to his role as a prophet. And the length or the significant significance of his time as a prophet. It does not mean that he's less of a prophet. He's not an unimportant prophet. It speaks to the time period and, and the extent, the length of his, his prophet is being in the role of prophet. It is descriptive of both who he is, what he said, and when he said it. And we have to know something also about what other kinds of books are found in the Bible for us to understand this. The Bible is not just one book. It is a collection of how many books? Thank you, 66. Good. There are how many in the Old Testament? 39. Good. Good answer. I heard, I heard somebody say there's 39 in the Old Testament, and therefore by math it's 27. I'll help you out there, Bob. 27 in the New. The Old Testament is broken up into at least five genres or categories or or broad types of of literature. There are five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and 
Very good, good. You got, got that at least down. Twelve historical books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. There's 12 books of histor- history. There's also po- a beautiful poetry. Psalms, Lamentations, Song of Sol- Solomon. But there's also wisdom books. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There are the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the major. They get get the good titles. And then there's 12 minor prophets. Hosea through Malachi. Different types of literature. So what what is a prophet? and, And what is prophecy? A prophet is someone who in the Old Testament heard and spoke for God. Often they were called a a seer or, or a prophet. He would speak the vision that God gave him and therefore he became the spokesperson for God's, to God's people and the world. He spoke with the authority of God. Often you hear, thus says the Lord. So he spoke with a direct connection from God, meaning his words when he spoke were God's words. He is the mouth by which God speaks to men and therefore what the prophet says is not the man, but it is God. Prophets were the immediate organs of God for the communication of his mind and will to men. Prophets had few messages and I'm overly exaggerating here, but here's one. There's a message of faith. Trust in God alone. Often idolatry became an issue. So it was a message of faith. Trust in God alone. None other. There was a message of obedience. Know, believe, practice God's word. There's a message of condemnation. Repent or God will destroy. Repent because God is coming. They also gave messages of hope, encouragement with a future promise, restoration, that peace is coming. And there's a message of the lordship of God, that God is God over all of creation. So why don't we have prophets today? This is one of the the arguments that Mormons will throw out today. They speak of an authority of their church because they have living prophets who have a direct line to God unlike the normal Joe Christian or Sally Christian. This prophet supposedly receives new revelations directly from God and these these revelations from God can be in opposition to previous revelations. In other words, God simply changed his mind. But listen to Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. When God entered human history and became the God-man, Jesus Christ, He spoke the last and final word. It is significant that in the first chapter of of John, verse 14, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among men. Not having a prophet today does not imply that God does not speak to an individual today, but it does mean that what God is going to reveal to mankind about Himself, He has already revealed. There is nothing more new. Look at my son. Look at my son. By now you should be very familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book is all that you need for faith and life in Him. We do not need outside revelation. 
for some reasons, it, it gives us a certain confidence to have a direct line with God. It's like, oh, but God told me this. And I feel really good if I, I feel like I have a direct connection with God. And we, we have one. If the purpose of a prophet is to speak for God, then all of our preaching and all of our teaching should point back to the Word incarnate, Christ. But what does that look like? What does it look like to have a prophetic voice today? A truly prophetic voice is one who has the courage to look around at a community of faith and preach the gospel and not teach Christianity. A prophetic voice is one who calls God's people to be His people. That's my job. I am calling you to be His people. A prophetic voice is one who will not compromise truth for the sake of stability, for the sake of security, for the sake of comfort, or even for the sake of conserving tradition. A prophetic voice is a radical voice. A voice that calls for radical change, even if that change is to call off tradition or to return to a vital tradition long obscured by false piety or self-righteousness. A prophetic voice will not gloss over injustice or oppression but, and will not be silent in the face of bigotry or prejudice or false pride. A prophetic voice will decry the trappings of our religion and simply ask people to be no less the Jesus and no more. And a prophetic voice is one who will settle for nothing less than the holiness of heart. Holiness of heart and life as a result of faithful obedience to the voice of God, not to the voice of men. So what was so special about this Jonah? Jonah was a real man, a real prophet who lived during the reign of Jeroboam II. He was from Gath Hefner of the northeast section of, of, uh, of Nazareth. He was, Jonah was written during the, the reign of King Jeroboam II, which was about 800 years before the birth of Christ. And according to 2 Kings 14, Jonah prophesied the expansion of the northern kingdom, which took place during Jeroboam's reign. But here's the deal. During the time uh, the nation of Israel was prosperous, it was also very steeped in sin. The other thing that we need to know is this, this book is not about the prophecy. Strangely, this is the only book of prophecy where the book centers on the man and not the prophecy. The prophecy that Jonah speaks is all of eight words. Eight words is the only prophecy preached out. The entire story before and after his proclamation is nothing less than a relationship between a, God, a man and his God. It is the only book of prophecy where the man refuses to obey God to the extent of actively running in the opposite direction he is told to go. The only book of prophecy where the prophet says, I'm out. I am going the other direction. That is gutsy. So it's a bit shocking. Not only that he runs, but it's also a bit gutsy and it's It's raw. We're shocked by his rebellion. We're shocked by his displeasure over God's willingness to show mercy to these people in Nineveh. Jonah wanted Nineveh to get what it deserved. He wanted to sit on his high horse and say, destroy them. Come into mind, Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroy them. God. That's what they deserve. So what does he do? He abandons his vocation. He abandons his calling. And like no other prophet before or after, he just runs from God. But nevertheless, and hear this, nevertheless, God is glorified not through his prophet, but in spite of his prophet. This book is raw. 
A lot of people dismiss it because they don't understand or they, they don't simply think that it's, they, they feel like it's irrelevant. And what I appreciate most about the Bible is that if it is in fact nothing, it is very real. It is honest. If I were going to create a religion on my own, the religion of Paul, there would be a ton of stories that I would probably leave out of the Bible. Jonah is that very story. A man who runs away from me. I would leave it out. It, is, it has very real feelings. It has a very real prophet who is really ticked off with God. And if you read the final chapter, what is so intriguing is how it ends. It just stops after God pretty much calls Jonah out. It stops. There's no nice little concluding paragraph that teachers love to have. It just stops. And of course, the book wasn't written at that point. Yet at some point, Jonah wrote the book about his own pride. And what kind of humility does that take? The book is a first. Jonah opens with God who calls Jonah to be the only Old Testament prophet to be sent in to preach in a nation other than Israel. Jonah is the only one who is plucked out of Israel to go preach to another nation that is not Israel. And he, he is called to the great city of Nineveh in the nation of Assyria, the enemies of Israel on the other side of the Tigris River. And unlike any of his predecessors, Jonah is commanded to not only leave his community and preach God's truth to someone, not only geographically outside of Israel, but spiritually outside of Israel. Suddenly, Jonah is confronted with a God who wants to save unclean people, dirty people. So what or who were these Assyrians? And John, just throw up, there's a map. Go up, I think, one. You can see, right, can't see very well. Maybe afterwards you can come up and take a picture, look at all these wonderful pictures. Here is Jerusalem. This is kind of the area right here of Israel. This all up here has become Assyria. Right up here is Nineveh. So he's got to do quite a haul. This is, this is a huge nation, pagan nation, totally outside. It was one of the greatest empires of the Middle East. It, the heartland of Israel or Assyria lay in what is now northern Iraq around the upper Tigris River. The Assyrians were especially wicked. They were cruel. They were prideful people who had, over the years, attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked Israel multiple times. In Genesis 10, we're told that Nimrod, poor guy, terrible name, a descendant of one of Noah's sons, Ham, founded Assyria. So, Nineveh. What's so special about Nineveh? Nineveh was one of the capitals of Assyria's empire. And at the height of the empire was one of the greatest cities of the world during that time. At one point, it was a significant cultural center. Significant. It, it possessed one of the largest libraries at that time known to mankind. Geographically, Nineveh was situated in what is now modern-day Mosul, uh, Iraq. It was centered in the, it kind of became the center of the world. The Bible and veggie tales tell us that the people of Nineveh were wicked people. Although they do not repent for a time after Jonah's eight-word sermon, it doesn't take long for them to become wicked again. The city is the focus of the prophet Nahum who, who calls down condemnation about a hundred years after Jonah preached his message and sees a tremendous amount of repentance. As if being a prideful Assyrian is not enough, they are a cruel 
military people. They were sexually immoral and involved in all kinds of sorcery. Listen, listen to how Nahum preaches, prophesies against these people. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Can you see what kind of a bloody, terrible people? Hold on. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nation with her whorings and people with her charms. Nahum has nothing good to say about these people. If you're looking for just a reference, that's Nahum 3, the first four verses there. And Nineveh was also just this huge city. It stretched some 30 miles along the Tigris River, usually about 10 miles wide at any one point. It was so big that it took Jonah about three days to walk across the city on foot. It was fortified with a hundred foot walls that surrounded the city. Wide enough on top for three chariots to ride, ride uh, race side by, th- side by side. And this just fueled their sense of invincibility and pride. Finally, it was a populous city. 120 children in addition to the adult population. It was big. But it's also a strange book. Some objections have been raised against a straightforward reading as, as a historical kind of book. And most common and obvious, the debate centers around the account of Jonah being in the belly of a whale or a great fish for for three days. Come on, that can't happen. Are you serious? A guy gets swallowed up, a full-grown man gets swallowed up by a fish and stays in there alive? What is he breathing? Stomach acid? Three days? Seriously? And scholars find this to be absolutely preposterous. Others have suggested that it's just an indication that the book as a whole is not simply a a historical report. While conservative apologists respond by citing occasions in modern times where sailors have actually survived, albeit in quite, quite bad condition, to stay in the innards of a large, large fish. There are a few others Strange things like the the repentance of animals. The the size of Nineveh. Some people have questions about the size. And with such fanciful stories and descriptions, some argue that the book should be read as a parable and not as a, a historical report. So what do we do with it? Well, I will approach it with the understanding that you cannot fall too hard on one side or the other. It is a biblical book with the authority of God's words behind it. And although I don't believe that much of the story is actually an exact, it's not a historical telling, I do recognize that some of it must be understood as a literary device. Otherwise, it might give rise to some really strange interpretations. But someone who denies what can only be considered a miracle relative to the fish story can't stop there the creator of the universe if the creator of the universe cannot manage to keep one of his creations alive inside one of his creations we have little hope that he can in fact then heal the sick we have little hope that he can give sight to the blind we have little hope that he can walk on water And we have little hope that he can raise the physical dead or the spiritual dead. Our God can keep a man alive in the belly of a fish for three days. What it boils down to is just more a matter of what you come to the text with. 
than the actual text itself? What are you bringing to the text? What I mean is that sometimes scientific law is, in fact, no law at all. And some of you are just going to get uncomfortable with that. So let me say it again. What I mean is that scientific law is, in fact, no law at all. Now, hear me out. Because some of you are already looking at each other going, oh, we're in one of those fundamentalist churches. This is not a science book, Paul. God is always at war with science. Listen. Specifically, the law of gravity states what, must, what goes up must come down. But that is not a, a law that man created, correct? But a scientific law is simply a description of what occurs naturally. It is a natural law. Since it is not prescriptive of what has to happen every time, it must make sense that the creator of nature, the creator of the universe, the one who set all things into motion, who spoke and worlds spun into existence. The sun suddenly appeared. Dry land, water. There was no water ever before. But it appeared. The one who spoke these very things into existence controlled all these things. And this creator can, in fact, alter, break, or adhere to natural law whenever he feels that he needs to. God can break, alter, or adhere to any natural law. Remember, this is a story about God's work through the life of Jonah. It is not a science lesson, and this is not a science lesson. It is a story of an amazing God who does amazing things and is able to break even the laws of science. So regardless of this unbelievable event, it is not just some fishy story. This book is about us. This book is about even our mission as a church, as the people of God. Here's the first thing I want you to hear. We are not chosen to be separated. Get that through our thick heads. You are not chosen to be in Christ to be separated from the world. The Jewish people have long claimed to be God's chosen people, but perhaps they misunderstood what it meant to be chosen. They were chosen not for a special privilege, but for a special responsibility. That special responsibility of sharing with the entire world the, re the message of repentance, the message of forgiveness, the message of grace, and that is true for you as well. You are not chosen to be separated from the world. You are chosen to be ambassadors of this message of grace, just like Jonah. Second thing, we are chosen for God's mission, not ours. God calls us to his mission, which may take us to places that he wants to go, where he is working, not always where we want to go and where what we want to do. Keep that in mind. As all of a sudden your heart is just feeling heavy towards going and dealing with these messy and dirty people. And you're going, this, these aren't my people. And God's going, I know, but they're my people who need to hear the message of repentance, the message. The message of grace. The message of Jesus Christ. Now go. Those are my people. We also need to keep in mind number three. We all run from God. I want us to say that out loud. We all I'm not sure you're convinced. But it's true. We all run from God. Everyone, I don't care how pious you are, how long you've been walking with Jesus, how many times you've been baptized, how, you know, how many books you've got memorized, or how, how many Bible studies you've led. We all run from God. Every one of you. Me. We all run from God. And how dumb is that? 
I mean, God lets us go sometimes. And even though he saves us, we often find ourselves stinky from the peak of our own consequences. We all run. Every one of us. And we need to be conscious of that and very aware of it in our lives as well as the lives of others. So when you see a brother or sister starting to wonder, you're not going, oh my gosh, she's such a wonderful Christian. How could she ever? We all run from God. Man, he, he's an elder. You know, what, what about 1 Timothy 3? And look at all these ex, expectations and he's doing that. We all run from God. That doesn't excuse it, but it's a fact. Which leads to the next one. We are all self-righteous. And if you're saying, no, I'm not, you just proved the point. (laughs) We are all self-righteous. We all have a self-righteous streak within us. It happens when you begin to think that you are better, more righteous, because we're rich or we're poor, because we're black or we're white, we're wise or we're foolish, because we're urban or suburban, because we're male or we're female, we're educated or uneducated, because we're a success or we're a failure. I'm better because of these things, these external things. And that is self-righteousness, and it reeks. So, it's time. If we approach Jonah believing it is just a big fish story, we will miss the story entirely. The fish is an extra to this story. He's an extra. The story is about Jonah, the man. A guy like you, a guy like me, we are Jonah. Jonah is a godly man in this story, and yet he is the only one who doesn't recognize that he still needs the Redeemer. The sinner hears God and the sinner repents. Jonah hears God, rebels, he runs, he gets himself into some serious stink because of it, and does what God asks but begrudgingly, and then point, pouts like a little child when God pours out his extravagant grace. In the book of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Prove that this is true. And Jesus responds to them saying, you are an evil generation. He tells them that there will be no sign given except the sign of Jonah. Of course, he's referring to the whale being in the whale three days, and he himself being in the tomb. But what he's talking about is not Jonah the fish food, but Jonah the self-righteous Christian who needs to recognize his own sin and his own need for a Savior so that he can learn to love sinners like Jesus did. If that is true, than it is about us. Self-righteous Christians who need to recognize our own sin and our own need for a Savior and then we can learn to love sinners as Jesus did. So if somebody would mind going down and telling the kids, the leaders, that we're going to run a few minutes late, we are going to actually still not cut anything out I know, it's going to kill some of you. You probably got pot roast waiting at home, dinner, grandma casseroles, and stuff like that. We're going to finish this out, and we're going to do it proper. So let's pray. We're going to enjoy communion, understanding our place before God, our pride, our, our prejudice, our need to repent, and then we're going to worship God for all that He is. Let's pray. Father God, we are broken people. But we are broken people who have been fundamentally transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the world will never be the same as it was because this is a world in which man come back from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead to save prideful 
broken, pathetic people like me, like us. So Lord, as we are honest with you and with each other, we are self-righteous. Even today, Lord, we find ourselves running from you and your will, your perfect plan. We are runners by nature. We're ungrateful. We don't respond appropriately to your grace and your mercy. So Lord, forgive us. Thank you for the gift of repentance, of turning our back on sin and turning to Christ, the one who fulfills all of our needs, heals all of our wounds, and makes us right before a holy and awesome and loving God. God, as we come to this meal together, Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts of repentance. So Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of the sins that we know are glaring in your eyes. Forgive us of the sins that we are absolutely blind or accustomed to. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our self-righteousness and our ungrateful hearts. Forgive us of our pride. And Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your gift of grace and thank you for feeding us with the gospel, feeding us with your very presence this morning, Lord. You feed us with your words of life. Lord, we are Jonah, but make us less like Jonah. Thank you for this time in your word, the time of worship, the time of enjoying you. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, the name that saves even self-righteous, prideful sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.